Hello, I'm Robin Gill, and you're listening to The West Block. This week on The West Block, economic uncertainty. Companies are spending less money on expanding production. A lot of people need help getting back on their feet. Then a turning point for reconciliation. At a time when we're confronting some hard truths about racism. Listening to Indigenous voices who are very outspokenly speaking. And fighting to free the two Michaels. Arbitrarily arresting random Canadians. There are still options for Ottawa to, uh, to continue to pursue. Hi everyone, today the West Block is coming from the West Coast. I'm Robin Gill in Vancouver. For weeks now, the Prime Minister has been pressed on presenting a fiscal update. Well, the federal government is finally giving us a financial snapshot of government spending this week. The last time the federal government gave us a look at the finances of this country, the 2019-2020 deficit was projected to be $26.6 billion and expected to improve to $11.6 billion by 2024-2025. Well, we know that's out the window. The government is borrowing heavily to keep the economy afloat. The parliamentary budget officer is forecasting a $256 billion deficit for this year. Ken Peacock is the chief economist with the B.C. Business Council. He joins us from Burnaby, B.C. Ken, Parliament has been asked to authorize massive amounts of spending to mitigate the economic damage of COVID-19. How are we going to get out of this hole? Oh, well, yes, they, they have absolutely been uh, asked to authorize massive amounts of spending. You're right, uh, more than $250 billion so far. So it's, it's a great question. Um, I, I would make a distinction if you're talking about the fiscal hole. So that's the deficit and how the federal government is going to address the deficit. That is going to take many, many years. It might be upwards of a decade before they get the deficit eliminated and start uh, paying down the debt. If we're talking the economic hole, it's also very deep, but I would think we probably will be returning to kind of where we were prior to the pandemic within a couple of years in terms of economic output. And then we're going to need to see the economy grow to begin to uh, start uh, paying down that deficit and paying down the debt later. The Prime Minister has said the economy is moving from an emergency to a recovery phase, but this pandemic isn't over. There's still the fear of the second wave. Is this premature of the Liberal government to say this? Um, so, I, I, no, I don't think so, no, because I actually am happy to hear governments talking about recovery. And this, this is because um, we've had lockdowns imposed uh, on the economy, uh, activity in the hospitality sector ground to halt, the retail sector ground to halt. So there is an inordinate amount of pain, and it is absolutely appropriate for government to begin to shift and start thinking about the economic recovery, what needs to be done. I absolutely uh, I get your point that's kind of implicit in in the question. Of course, there's concerns with the, the, the risk that the virus is going to have outbreak again and, and another spread. This is one of the challenges, but government is going to have to find a way to walk that line of gradually opening up the economy and turning to the issue uh, of economic recovery. And I say that just because of the inordinate amount of job losses. We've got to get people back to work. We've got to get that unemployment rate down. So the, the shift in my mind is appropriate. <clears throat> The Prime Minister did reject the idea of a fiscal update until now, arguing it's too hard to predict what will happen given the times we're in. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it was a bit of a, it, it was certainly a challenging time. It was interesting. Uh, they, they have, the 
federal government uh, took a pass on, on the fiscal update. The Bank of Canada also note that they didn't provide a forecast when they released their monetary policy report uh, several weeks back. So uh, it is understandable. It was such crazy times for economists. Economic models, the traditional models that these institutions use, the government and, and the, the Bank of Canada, could not handle the, the magnitude of the downturn and, and just what was going on. So the traditional tools weren't available to, uh, to economists. So it was challenging time. Now, having said that, uh, it is possible to, to, to take a, a shot at what the downturn might look like. So it was a, a little bit, perhaps a little bit cowardly, but given the fact that revenues were plummeting, the economy was slowing dramatically, and money was being uh, sho shoveled out the door, for, for lack of a better term, uh, very, very rapid pace. I can understand, I'm a little bit sympathetic with the whole notion of just trying to figure out where exactly we are uh, being difficult. I'm an advocate and a supporter of more information is always better. Government should be communicating to people as much as possible, but misinformation or uh, problematic information may, may not, uh, may not be helpful. So waiting, waiting for a clearer picture, uh, I, I would say, is not, not a bad move for the Prime Minister. You've talked about how the different provinces are opening at a different pace. How does that affect the overall economy? Yeah, this is something I've talked about. Uh, it, we wrote up in our, in our recent economic forecast publication at the Business Council, and this is something I've been concerned about right from the outset. because. In the early days of the virus, it was sweeping across different countries at different rates. Um, countries were having variable success in containing and fighting the virus. And when I look at what's going on now, it's of course, um, cases are rising in the U.S. Uh, there's still challenges in eastern Canada. B.C. is in very, very good position. But as long as we're in such good position, I envision a world where we're going to be reluctant to open our borders, let travelers in. And so that is going to continue to weigh on the economy. Uh, international tourism is very, very important for the provincial economy. Business travel, families, all this. As long as, as that can't come back because we're concerned about uh, the virus in other jurisdictions coming coming to the province. It's gonna it's gonna weigh on the recovery process and this uneven um, kind of evolution of the virus and and policy responses across jurisdictions. I think is very problematic for for the recovery over the next couple of years. So how long can provincial governments and federal governments dole out this money and and, and try to sustain our economy? Yeah, that's a great question. So it, it, I would draw a distinction uh, there. There's, sort of, there's this emergency funding that the federal government in particular has, has been putting out and spending. And then there's this more traditional fiscal stimulus, which is infrastructure spending and spending on retraining individuals in, in the workforce and whatnot. So the fiscal stimulus part where you get productive assets from investing in infrastructure, that can go on longer and I expect that to be uh, an integral part of the federal government's rebuilding strategy. The Prime Minister was just on television this morning talking about some of these projects here in BC. The uh, sort of emergency funding, the, the wage subsidy program and the CERB, that is a bigger question. That cannot go on indefinitely, obviously. Uh, it's hugely expensive. And I, I think you're going to have to see those programs wrap up fairly shortly. Both of those, uh, the wage subsidy and the CERB, were extended recently. Uh, I, I'm sympathetic to the need to understand it because people are there's still high unemployment and a lot of people are in difficult circumstances. Uh, myself, I probably would have looked to start scaling back the CERB a little bit because it is going to have to be withdrawn at some point. 
Um, so I would look to that sort of emergency funding money to be scaled back quickly, uh, but don't look for fiscal stimulus and infrastructure spending money to dry up anytime soon. That's going to go on for several years, uh, if not longer. Okay, Ken Peacock, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. This past Canada Day wasn't a celebration of this country for these protesters. The movement called Cancel Canada Day held rallies across the country to draw attention to Canada's racist past and current inequalities with Indigenous and racialized communities. Joining us now from Nelson, B.C., Phil Fontaine, former chief of the Assembly of First Nations, who has been vocal on these issues. Phil, before we touch on these protests, let's talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project. The Supreme Court of Canada decided it will not hear an appeal by three First Nations groups in B.C. that have been trying to stop the project. Now, keeping in mind that you have worked with energy companies on promoting another pipeline, did the federal government fail to consult with these groups? It's... The Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline was, wasn't uh, the easiest issue to uh, deal with. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, of Canada has made it very clear that uh, it is satisfied that our nations were consulted uh, in a meaningful way and that the project uh, must proceed. And I say that uh, knowing full well the, the opposition to the project. But I also keep in mind that there are many, many nations along the route and beyond that uh, are favorable to uh, uh, proceeding with the project. I've always been a, a strong believer that uh, development, if it's undertaken in a, in a good way, in a sustainable way, that uh, recognizes and protects the uh, the environmental interests of our people, and that uh, these projects are, in fact, um, a way to reduce poverty-related issues in our communities. Of course, I will support the projects of that nature. You talk about moving forward when it comes to Indigenous communities working with energy companies. How can that happen without any conflict? Well, I, I believe that uh, there are a couple of factors that, uh, that play into this. One is that the, the courts have been very clear that Indigenous peoples have distinct rights over their lands and territories, and that those rights have to be considered very seriously and carefully, and that there isn't a single project anywhere in the country that can or ought to proceed without the meaningful participation and involvement of our peoples. That's one, that's one major consideration. The other is that uh, our people are getting uh, quite uh, 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 concerned about matters and the way they used to be dealt with. Now, they're looking at these projects in a way that uh, I think to them, and to many, uh, is a positive uh, uh, process. Because our people are talking now, uh, and this is distinct uh, language, joint uh, ventures, uh, equity positions, ownership, and, and the like. And that suggests to me that there's been a change in attitude to use that kind of language. All right, let's, let's switch gears now and talk about all these protests that have 
been happening right across the country. Are they effective in getting out the message about racism in this country, especially when it comes to First Nations? Well, the protests, I think, are, are really important. Uh, they bring attention to our issues, uh, but they can't be taken in, uh, and looked at in isolation because there are a whole number of other things that have uh, occurred over time that would uh, that ought to uh, have brought attention to Canadians about the distinct interests and special interest, distinct and special interests of our people in every part of the country. Reports, inquiries, um, the fact that we become more uh, involved politically, we we become better educated, and now there are many, many more communities that have become uh, very involved in in development in in positive ways, and so uh, um, we, um, we we just can't dismiss uh, the protests. Is is the point I'm trying to make? But we should consider them in. Uh, together uh, with all of the other uh, important uh, matters that have uh, taken place over the last while. We have seen so many anti-racism protests and mostly focused on Black Lives Matter. Have the issues facing Indigenous communities taken a backseat to this movement, or could this be a turning point for, for all racialized communities? Well, the Black Lives Matter movement is a worldwide uh, uh, movement. And uh, my concern was that uh, Indigenous issues would, uh, uh, would take a back seat. But really, we're looking uh, at a multi-layered uh, uh, issue. And uh, Indigenous peoples uh, are a very important uh, issue. And uh, to my way of thinking, uh, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, Indigenous-related issues um, and systemic racism. I mean, when we talk about our the Canadian situation, we're talking about uh, impoverished First Nation communities. The largest single issue, the most important issue facing Canadians today, is the eradication of mass poverty in First Nation communities. What do we need to see from governments and businesses to make it better? Well, I think from government, there has to be a continuation of their commitment to resolving the many outstanding issues related to Indigenous peoples. And we're talking about land. We're talking about institutional racism. We're talking about policing. We're talking about decent housing. We're talking about a whole range of issues that government has expressed a commitment to uh, uh, resolving these issues, but they can't be resolved in isolation. They, they, and I'm, the point I'm making here is government can't do it alone. It has to do it in collaboration with our peoples. Otherwise, we will end up as we've had in the past, failure. In the, it, the, the decree can't come from on high. Uh, this matter has to be dealt with on the ground with our people. Okay, Phil Fontaine, thank you so much for your time. On Friday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced Ottawa is suspending Canada's extradition treaty with Hong Kong. It means Hong Kong residents facing extradition from Canada would not be sent back. The move is in response to China's recent national security law for Hong Kong, which essentially brings what was once an autonomous city-state under Beijing's legal control and authority. 
Canada joins the international community in expressing its grave concern with the passage of national security legislation for Hong Kong by mainland China. After studying the legislation and its impact, Canada will treat exports of sensitive goods to Hong Kong in the same way as those destined for mainland China. We are also suspending the Canada-Hong Kong extradition treaty and updating our travel advisory for Hong Kong. Now, this comes as tensions between China and Canada are at an all-time high over the arrest of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. She's been detained in Vancouver, albeit able to live at one of two homes she owns in the city. She's wanted in the United States, accused of misleading banks and violating sanctions against Iran. Soon after her arrest, two Canadian men, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, were arrested on so-called espionage charges. China has long insisted the arrests were not arbitrary. To talk about this, we're joined by Bonnie Glazer. She's with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Bonnie, our Prime Minister has described this situation as hostage diplomacy. So what are the options for our federal government? Well, of course, Canada should continue quiet diplomacy, uh, demands for better treatment of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. This issue just has to remain at the top of Canada's diplomatic agenda uh, with Beijing. It just shouldn't be business as usual. As usual. Uh, Canada should also redouble its efforts to uh, forge a proactive coalition condemning China's illegal and arbitrary uh, arrest of the two Michaels. Now, all like-minded countries face a risk of having their citizens arbitrarily detained. And uh, democracies around the world should just be pressed to rally to the cause in support of uh, justice and, uh, and human rights. And then, of course, a third option is to consider applying uh, the Magnitsky sanctions against Chinese officials who are responsible for the wrongful detention of, uh, of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. So there are still options for Ottawa to, uh, to continue to pursue. A lot, of, a lot of legal experts have weighed into this case and say Canada has the legal authority to set Hmong free, but at what cost with the United States, especially with Donald Trump at the helm? He's been very blatant about his disdain for our prime minister. Well, uh, look, the Trump administration has dealt with this issue very poorly, uh, especially President Trump who at one point said he would intervene in the Hmong case if it would help reach a, a trade deal with China. So that said, I think that Canada has an important reciprocal relationship with the United States, where each, of course, undertakes to turn over people who have been accused uh, uh, to the other country's courts. And, and violating this arrangement would be damaging to Canada's reputation. Um, I think that the U.S. and other countries would uh, likely view Canada as potentially untrustworthy, and uh, the resulting mistrust would persist regardless of the outcome of the presidential election in the United States uh, in, uh, in November. Uh, but, you know, I think that Hmong was involved in a scheme that saw hundreds of millions of dollars flow illegally to Iran in violation of international sanctions. And China's obviously trying to use hostage diplomacy to undermine international rules. And this is something that other countries should be willing to stand by uh, Canada with. And uh, this, is, this is not uh, something that uh, Canada should deal with by itself. Uh, and uh, we, we, this is, it, it should be on the front of everybody's agenda. Will the U.S. give up on its fight with China and drop the charges against Hmong?
Well, I can't predict what President Trump is going to do, but the phase one deal is already signed. There is no possibility of a phase two deal being signed uh, anywhere in the near future. Uh, I suspect that many officials in the Trump administration would oppose a deal in any case. Uh, and if uh, Joe Biden is elected, I think the position of his administration would be more principled and more consistent. Have Canada's allies abandoned us in this case, though? Oh, no. Um, uh, could the United States and other countries do more? Absolutely. But I don't think that countries have abandoned Canada. I would cite, for example, uh, I think it was just two weeks ago, Secretary of State Pompeo issued a very strong statement expressing extreme concern about the uh, Chinese decision to formally charge the two Canadian citizens. Um, he referred to the charges as politically motivated and completely groundless, and said very clearly that the United States stands with Ottawa in calling on Beijing to immediately release uh, the two Michaels. Uh, Pompeo also condemned Beijing's restriction of consular access to them um, in accordance with the Vienna Convention on, uh, on Consular Relations. So I think that the United States is uh, making strong statements, uh, I hope privately, also putting this issue very much on the agenda. But if countries don't do more in coordination and concert with each other, then China can simply you know, try to divide them, to drive wedges uh, between them. China fears, most of all, an anti-China coalition. Um, we're seeing that form on issues like uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is another issue where countries should be uh, working together more closely. Given the iron fist of this communist regime and conviction rates in China being 99 percent, is there any hope of getting the two Michaels out sooner rather than later? We should not be pessimistic. We should leave no stone unturned in our efforts to get them to, to be released. This is not an issue where we should look backwards and judge Chinese record on, in past cases. Um, we just have to work as hard as we possibly can to convince the PRC it is in its best interest. If it wants to be seen as a responsible global player, it must release the two Michaels and stop arbitrarily arresting foreign citizens. Bonnie Glazer, thank you for your time. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. For the West Block, I'm Robin Gill. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.